0: Welcome to the Faro's Fit Podcast, where we help you to explore your capacity to move better, push further, and achieve your limitless potential through fitness, nutrition, recovery, and lifestyle. Hey guys, welcome back to the Faro's Fit Podcast. Uh, great to be back with you guys again. Uh, we are back on the topic of uh, regenerative farming um, and you know, how, how we can how we can do things better in, in, the, in the world of farming and how things can change uh, for, for, to keep ourselves healthier and for the for the good of the environment. Uh, I'm here today with Devin Day. Hey, Devin, how are you doing?
1: I'm excellent. Thanks for uh, having me.
0: Of course, great to have you. Uh, Devin Day uh, owns Valley Var- uh, Farmstead in um, in Washington. Whereabouts exactly in Washington are you, Devin?
1: We're in Acme, Washington. Um Washington. It's about an hour and a half north of
0: Seattle. Okay. Yeah. And um, Devin has a unique situation on this farm. They're doing some, some pretty pioneering work in specific directions. So we're going to chat about that today. So, Devin, uh, let's, let's do a quick bio here. Like, how, how, who are you? How did this whole thing start? And uh, give us some backstory to, uh, to the Valley Farmstead.
1: Well, about 15 years ago, I was... Um, very much into the tech and uh you know media um, entrepreneurial culture and um different startups and things like that um that was fun learned a ton um still i mean i still apply it into so many facets of my life today whether it's you know i need to build my own website or you know get my own shopify plugin designed or something like that i mean all that's still still there but I got into uh, farming as a whole for two reasons. One, um, I started to really understand the health benefits, and number two, um, I also understood the reality of being on a debt-based economy system, and Mm so I'm not a huge fan of current supply chains. I mean, of course, here we are today, right? Um, but even back then it was, you know, a little bit of, of, you know, that inner self preservation, you know, that kind of mode and just understanding where that leads over time. Um, I'm surprised that it's been able to hang on this long, but, um, that's, that's kind of the genesis of, of what. Got my mentality around wanting to grow my own food, wanting to think about a little bit of uh, food sovereignty, things like that. So um, from there, you know, my dad started working for uh, managing a few farms out in Acme, Washington. And he had asked, hey, you want to come, you know, uh, work out here, help manage a few of the projects we got going on? And I was like, "Mm, not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I had some, you know, we had small kids at the time, uh, I was a little bit burnt out on, you know, tr- I was traveling a lot, you know, San Francisco, Chicago, San Diego, things like that. And it'd been, you know, five, six years at this point of just go, go, go. And I thought, you know what, that might actually be nice. You know, it's, it's, uh, it, it'd be a a, a trans, a very juxtaposed, juxtaposed transition in terms of what I'd be doing, Mm. but it was a good leap in terms of, you know, being able to continue to provide for the family and things like that. Um, so I did. And, uh, through that process of being able to, you know, get integrated with a larger farming culture that was out here, um, it kind of became a day to day. I started, you know, Taking my IT brain and going, I think that could be better. I think that could be better. I think that could be better. And, you know, through that thinking over the years, I started to implement my own little micro projects, micro project here, micro project there. And then each of those started to develop into its own sustainable. And when I say sustainable, I mean, you know, profitable um you know cash flow model and i just continued to expand them and i continued to integrate them in a way where they started to line up so now i had this um you know very you know regenerative model that was profitable was manageable by a family only type concept i didn't need to you know raise tons of money to do it and it was started to become a secondary hobby income that was making me more money than my primary income. And it just kind of grew from there. So
0: amazing. And how did that how did that feel kind of psychologically for you? Because it seems like once you make that transition, and your your livelihood is more in line with your, your like philosophy and what makes you you know, what makes you feel good and what makes you feel happy and what makes you feel content. And once you can make a living out of doing something kind of like virtuous is the wrong word, but you know, something that aligns with your, um, you know, philosophy of the planet, philosophy of life and all that kind of stuff, that must've felt pretty good to be working towards something meaningful.
1: Yeah, it definitely is. You know, when you're doing something that Um, at the end of the day, and you're hanging your hat up and going inside has lasting value. For me, I'm a huge problem solver, and I love educating. So, you know, I think a lot of this, as I started to, because I didn't know all of the things that I know now, when I got going years ago, and, you know, there was always a new problem or challenge to be solved, which just kept my mind, I get bored really fast. If I get bored, I get you know, distracted. I don't want to do it. <clears throat> My friends <laughs> always uh, laugh about that. My wife laughs about that. And so I'm I'm always needing to solve some big challenge kind of thing, um, mm. just to kind of keep myself busy. So all of these little projects allowed me to do that. So I was fulfilled in that sense. Um, I enjoyed doing it. Um, the I, I became very aware of like the the whole factory farming model um, as I became more aware of my food and, and things like that. I, I began to realize, you know, kind of how gross the underbelly of that system is yeah. um, and how, you know, at the end of the day, when we're talking calories, how unsustainable from a you know, health and calorie and, uh, uh, you know, just from all those facets as well. And so, um, so it's, it's, um, very rewarding in that sense. And I love the fact, I'll give you a quick example, like, you know, one of the crops that we raise is rabbits, right. And we do our rabbits in a very, um, uh, in a way that is, I'm, I'm pretty OCD with things. So there's, there's a very solid structure from, you know, the animal's health to the food that it eats to the way that it's packed to the way that it's delivered to all of these things. Yeah. And um, because of that, um, I, I get a lot of calls from people who tell their natural paths will tell them, Hey, you know, to really help with a, a, a non-inflammatory non, uh, um, um allergen diet you know if you're going to eat protein let's get you on rabbit and so i got a lot of calls for that and i started to notice this trend and so one of the things you know and we got rave reviews from people who had um you know autoimmune issues had yeah. dietary issues things like that
0: i know crohn's, and so, crohn's is a bit, crohn's is a big one right absolutely 100 percent yeah.
1: And so we we started to kind of target that realm as well, if we were doing any sort of, you know, AdWords and things like that. But what, what I liked and what I really started discovering was um, we fed our other animals, whether it be beef, whether it be poultry, whether it be egg layers, you know, so on and so forth. And so because of the way that we fed our animals, I would say to them, hey, why don't you try this uh, bison that we have? Or why don't you try this you know, beef uh, roast? Or here's a tenderloin, give this a shot. And the first response was always, no, 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 I can't do that. It really messes with my system. I'm not supposed to eat those things. And I'll say, okay, well, I, I totally understand. Why don't you try this? And at this point I've usually built, I've had conversations with these individuals. I've started to build a little bit of a relationship and I'll offer something to them, whether it be a whole chicken or whatever it is. And I'll say, "You know what? Just feed it to your family um, and have them try it. But have a, a taste of it when you you make it. See what it does for you. And one hundred percent of every customer that i've that's had those issues that I've mentioned this has either called me or the next time they came by to pick up an order has said, "Oh my gosh." I tried x or y that that you gave me, and I didn't have a reaction mm. and as I started to understand more myself, I'd always go, Ah, see, it's not what you're eating, it's what the animal's eating that is causing the issues that you're having right and that was a huge watershed moment for me for being able to communicate to customers, but I had a that watershed moment you know years prior to that because. When I first started, I fed our animals just like every other, in a lot of ways, I would say, you know, a large percentage of the, you know, uh, sustainable, uh, uh, regenerative farming folks still to this day, feed fairly commodity oriented feeds. Um, But when we throw it out on pasture, we do these things, we think, oh, well, they're healthy now. Well, no, they're not because they're getting you know, terrible calcium in their feed, that's not bioavailable, they're getting poor, you know, waste nutrients that some chemical company um, wants to find, instead of having a byproduct, they put it in animal feed, right? And and we don't understand these things to the extent um, that bothered me. So I started to become more aware of that. um, Because the first things that I did is I did the traditional no corn, no soy, right? And I thought, okay, awesome. I'm, I'm, you know, this amazing, you know, uh, uh, grass fed farmer, yada, yada. And, but then, you know, I really started to come understand canola and nutrients and things that our family was doing for ourselves. And so I started to break down and I went on this kick for about a year. It took me about a year to go from that moment to the point where I had, um, a naturopath, not a nat, sorry, not a nat, a nutritionist. Um, that really understand the, the OCD that was going on in my head I would talked to a lot of nutritionists like I went to the local mills where I bought my feed and was like hey any chance I can sit down with your nutritionist and and tweak this and that and I'd have these conversations with these folks and they were just like why do you want to do that we it's built right in there and I'm like no because that's a terrible pro- I wouldn't yeah. present it like that but that those, those things just don't go off in their heads because it's, it's not, that's the way that it's done. Right. Um, and I hear that a lot, you know, with traditional, you kind of have your traditional farmers, which might be in the dairy industry or beef farmers, you know, and things like that. Then you kind of have this movement of sustainability and, you know, permaculture and, uh, regenerative farming and all these practices are, but there's still this sneaky secret of commodity feed that runs through both categories. Right. And, and so that's where it took me about a year. And I read book after book, and I finally found some books that started to break it down in layman's terms, you know, what all of these measurements and, and uptake, you know, math in terms of, you know, what it did to the animal's body. And I spent about a year really learning those processes. And in that year, I finally found a nutritionist that was like, I know exactly what you're talking about um and so we sat down and started to cuss and and he allowed me to ask him all the stupid questions like what is this divided by that like what does that mean in terms of jewels of uptake for the animal like and uh really helped me understand all of these elements and then what I did after really breaking it down, and and I remember that moment where he sent me that zip file, and I had, you know, seven recipes for mash formulas, and like seven recipes if I'm going to pelletize it, slightly varying because one needs a little more, um, you know, uh, lignin to really pack that pellet tight and things like that if you're going to do a, a pelletized formula, and uh, and it was great because. I'm in this really unique subculture here in the Skagit and, and, um, and Wacom County valleys that I'm in that is a really cool community of, of regenerative farmers and things like that. And there's a flour mill and there is a, um, a uh, malter that does all the, you know, malting for all the micro breweries around here. and, they have amazing varieties of organic brands and weeds. Mm. And, you know, I stayed away from corn and all, you know, all the other things that, um, you know, I didn't want in my feed, soy and things like that. And they don't offer those, but, um, you know, organic peas and and all of the things that I really wanted that were right from my valley. And I'm like, wow. Right. Yeah. So I built a good relationship, always had um, quality, uh, um. You know grains and and things coming in from from there, and then I went down through the nutrient lines and developed custom nutrient blends and the beauty of moving from so here's an example and this was this was pre all the inflation numbers that are happening now and causing food food you know uh um, prices to spike and all that I was at that time paying almost eight hundred dollars a ton for a commodity feed right. And I went from a feed, I set up my own feed mill. I have mixers and grinders and pelletizers and 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 that took about a year and a half to really uh, come to fruition. But now I take local ingredients, I take a human grade, extremely bioavailable. Some of them are even micro encapsulated so that they pass through the gut biome of the animal and don't get Ruined in the hydrochloric acid and get deposited where they need to um, from a nutrient standpoint. Um, and created these blends for when I was my most expensive blend for probably three to four X the value of commodity feed in terms of nutritional um, punch to it um, was probably about $400 a ton. So I went wow. from $400 a ton. a ton for mediocre feed but there's another thing that happened as I started to transition from the commodity to my vertically integrated you know home produced uh, feed was it would take me uh, 12 weeks to get to a market ready rabbit fryer Um, and after a 100% transition onto our own product Um, And there were a few other things that that we tweaked that that helped this process. We went um, to an eight week ready market ready fryer, so we shaved off four weeks in the amount of time. But not only that, there were other uh, curves that happened. Uh, We saw the moods of the animals change. We saw um, the aggressiveness of rabbits change, and just the demeanor overall. when, When your body has the right uptake of the right nutrients your body's more at peace it's more balanced right when you're missing all of these spikes it's it's sort of like being diabetic where when your blood sugar spikes you you just you don't feel all there right but blood blood sugar spiking is is one of the worst problems now i can imagine animals being very similar in, in blood sugar. I could only imagine what kind of blood sugar spiking they would have on commodity feeds, right? So you can imagine the aggressiveness of the animal, all of these things are going to change as they're getting that proper diet that really makes a difference. So what I did was, um, I, I produced a, a feed, uh, for each animal that I could control because I, I developed the feed for three things health, marbling, and flavor, right? And bar none, I've I've never had meat taste the way that this does. It it in my opinion is far because of the the ability for the animal to take up the nutrients necessary. Our soils are so depleted, yada yada. And a lot of times what we do as uh pasture raised farmers we go and we'll take sludge from a dairy and spray it all over our fields. But I can only imagine what's really in that cow manure
0: right.
1: that we're spraying on our field. Right. Yeah. and so It's, it's kind of, it's kind the of fascinating
0: that because the, the excuse is always it's too expensive. Right. People always say, Oh, I would do it that way, but it's too expensive. It's not affordable. Like right. you can do it on a small farm, but you can't do it on a big farm and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. But it's fascinating. You're saying actually, not only did I, it's because too much better product, to- I have my costs.
1: Right, right, exactly. And, and not only that, I mean, when it comes to the amount of work that you put into it, the, the, the necessary thing, because this is one of the issues, since I came from, you know, kind of a marketing background, I understood the psychology of the buyer, or I was able to break down the psychology of what my buyer needs to be. Because I'm going to put that kind of effort into raising an animal i need to find the kind of individual who finds the value in that kind of you know application in in animal rearing that's how i run into chefs like alana that's how i ran into you know all you know we deliver rabbit to all of the high end and maple syrup and all the other products that we do to all of the high-end restaurants throughout seattle and the pacific northwest region and um you know when i went when i went out and I did this as a, as a psychological, you know, sales thing was when I went to these restaurants and I went culture, you know, I started producing a high quality product and I had no customers. The problem mm-hmm. for me wasn't that it, it it was never the fact that I didn't think I was going to be able to get customers. I wanted to have the best product first and go line them up with the same customers that I knew were only a phone call away. Right. And so, um, it it was it was that exact type of mentality that I designed my pricing based on. So for example, for my wholesale with Rabbit, when I would go to these customers, I wanted to be far more expensive. I should say far more. I wanted to be more expensive than the product I <gasps> was currently <overly> buying. <laughs> um and and the reason for that was is because it set the standard that my product was better. A pricing standpoint but it also was better and I could show them that it was better Um, and I would I'd go in cold turkey I never called my customers ever and so I would walk into and I and I knew when to go in at the right timing to not you know irritate the chef because he's busy prepping and all that so when I'd go in there, I'd go in with my Yeti cooler and I'd have a, a, a rabbit and I'd have a, a jar of maple syrup that really always sealed the deal. Right. Because the story was behind the maple syrup after giving them the story of the difference in how we raise rabbit. Right. And it, and it went the same. And the, and the nice thing was, was, you know, I'd show them and I'd present this rabbit. The presentation was, you know, uh, and branding was phenomenal. Um, With with our packaging, that helped visually with that first impression. The second thing that they did, they noticed the body and genetic makeup of that rabbit. So you'd have a thicker loin, you'd have a shorter body. Most rabbits are long, lanky, and have thin thin thighs and have fairly skinny backbones, right? And they just they don't look right. So I took a a program and modified it for my own needs so that I got a, a shorter body. And a lot of that extra length went into thicker thighs, larger backbone. And it basically looked my rabbits looked like a big block of cheese, right? Because they yeah. were just one big brick. There's more meat, essentially. And there's more meat to bone ratio. And so that played a big role in them. Wow, okay. And they call over their sous chef. And then after you know, sharing the the story, the background, I'd always get the the the, the comment of pricing. Well, you know, this is a phenomenal looking rabbit. Our our current rabbits are, are are not this expensive. And that's where I would say, um, you know, okay, well, what do you pay for your rabbit? Um, and I say, well, okay, let's, let's walk through this real quick. Number one, your rabbit is when you pull it out of the bag, it's extremely slimy, because they shove that liver up into the chest cavity. And they shove the the heart in that chest cavity all in one package. So that you end up pulling out a really slimy, and they're like, "Yeah, you're right about that," you know. And and I I I nail some of those pain points that I knew that they would have when I mentioned those, and I said, "What I do is so your pain, I could mathematically show them what they were paying for those extra liver organs and heart organs within each rabbit. Right? There was a price to that." And so I said, I package everything separately. So you get a pristine, air chilled, um, you know, high quality rabbit. And I package the the Oregon separately. And I, deliver, I, I include those at no charge for your order. And I said, based on getting those at no charge, and I show them the math, I'm actually less expensive than the rabbits you're currently purchasing for a sub, you know, subpar product. That message along with my um, going in and introducing myself face-to-face, I took over 90% of the market share for rabbits uh, within a year in this Seattle metro area. Oh, wow. And mind you, the company that held that market share was you know, a $50 million company, meat company so that's the power of really understanding the product that you're raising the message that you're sharing and uh going out there and and having the willingness to have these conversations and and share with them why your
0: product is is better and so you can price them accordingly when you have something that you truly believe in you know it's a much easier sale than you know faking it which is what a lot of people are doing when they're selling stuff it's like a you're, you're selling stuff because you're a salesman rather than because you yeah. truly believe in the product.
1: And that's very um, easy to spot.
0: Right. Is. And, and what I love about this is, you know, as, as a coach, you know, I'm always talking about the bioavailability bio of foods that we eat as humans. Like, yeah, you can eat that and it has X amount of calories and X amount of nutrients. It doesn't matter if you can't absorb it. Right. But what you're doing is you're taking that a step further and saying, yeah, but you've got to take that step further and think about the actual animal. What's the right. animal eating and is it bioavailable for right. them? So that's it's just right. extending this, this very kind of like, you know, common sense chain when you think about it, but it's something that's just been ignored for so long and questions that just aren't asked because, you know, everyone just, you know, assumes right. or takes for granted or just doesn't even think about, you know, these right. kinds of things. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a, it's kind of a fascinating extension of what I'm, what I've been talking about for a few years in terms of bioav- bioavailability and have you managed to or have you witnessed other people following you in this in this way in terms of feed for your for your animals?
1: Uh, yes. Well. I would say. Yes, in terms of really liking and understanding what I'm doing, I would say no, in terms of because the, the, the path that I took was, you know, I pre- I, I created a product. And I continue over a four to five year period to reinvest that cash flow to the point where I didn't have the you know I, I everything that I did was based on cash flow from I think my original investment to to kick off all this crazy stuff we're doing over here was ten thousand dollars maybe right right I mean I went to Craigslist for all my walk-in coolers all my stainless things I mean. I went to look at the pricing for everything that was new. I mean, you're looking at a sink that might be eighteen hundred dollars. I'd find it for two fifty on Craigslist, and it was the same shiny stainless yep. steel. Bin, you know. So from that perspective, I, I I really worked in that mode to the point where you know I'd have enough cash flow. You know, if I wanted that twenty thousand dollar mixer, I could go. Dang, I can actually buy that, and I paid for that through you know, profit of building a a, a good solid um cash flow system. Cause if you don't have a cash flow, you know, I for me, money isn't the focus, but if your foundation isn't set in all of these columns, right? Profitability, a good product, a good message, all of these things, one of them breaks down the whole thing. And if you know that's one of the biggest things that I, I think a lot of people don't focus on is who are you going to sell it to? What are you going to charge for it? And is your business going to be profitable, right? Right. If those things can't happen, I just, I don't, if I can't answer those questions before I start, I don't start. Because I don't want to go through doing something over and over and expecting a different result is a very painful process after two years.
0: Right. And you can't have an ideology without (laughs) a plan, right? Correct. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is a problem that a lot of people get into. Right. (laughs) So let's go in a little bit more because I know the maple syrup is a is a huge part of what you're doing, um, and it's kind of like a different side of the business. So, t- talk about that. Like, w- how is your maple syrup different? Why has it become so popular, and why is it such a, a successful part of what what you're doing now? Yes.
1: So, kind of in the way, and, and I'll I'll preface this real quick. You know, just with a, a quick rabbit analogies. Kind of the way that our rabbits saw the rabbits were the first thing that we did. We saw a need, we filled that need with a with a really high quality product, and it, and it took off. So we had uniqueness going for us in the sense of you know there wasn't a really well produced rabbit in my very foodie style region, and so um, much like the success for the maple syrup you have um a region right now that does not produce maple syrup and so we're the first commercial processor of big leaf maple syrup on the west coast so uh, maple syrup traditionally you know is an east coast thing your vermont your quebecs your new york you know your michigan etc right um and so it 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 was something a that wasn't supposed to be able to be done here. We were told that from foresters and all of the academics here, like it, it can't be done. We don't have the weather for it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that wasn't. I mean, I didn't care. It was like, oh, okay. Well, now you're going to really turn it into a challenge. Let's give this a shot. Yeah. Right. So, you know, originally my dad had read a paper and it was from 1971 and it was an Oregon State paper where um, a couple of professors from Oregon State University had gone out and manually tapped, gosh, a handful, 20, 25 maple trees and collected data in buckets and, and, you know, processed their data. And the whole thesis of the thing was, If you were to invest the money in, you know, traditional maple syrup, uh, uh, you know, lines and add vacuum to it, could maple syrup be commercially produced on the West Coast? And there was a huge question mark, even in the thesis of the paper, because it was like, you know, we did get it. We we made a tiny bit of maple syrup. It tasted great. It was different flavors than the East Coast, but it was a, a very tasty product but we don't have a conclusion on whether it could be commercially viable so we played around for a few years um after reading that uh and had drilled some trees no success we didn't really understand the weather patterns and things like that but one day we went out on a day uh, or my dad did on a day that uh was um supposedly the perfect weather patterns that that we'd come to understand is what we needed. Right. And sure enough, he drills a tree and all of a sudden sap starts pouring out. And when I say the word sap, a lot of people will think of a very thick kind of, you know, Oh, I got my hands gooey on the tree kind of sap. It's not, it's, it's basically your H2O water with a very, very small percentage of natural sugars that are in the sap itself. And so that right there was like, wow it really does come out of big leaf maple trees and so we started getting um you know these these buckets from uh the local uh diner cleaned them out really well melted holes in the top of the cap put a a, a, a tubing and a tap up to the tree and just put them out all over the place and so for about two years we just lugged these you know uh Uh, buckets out of the woods and by the end of the day your joints hurt and at the end of the day when we got 100 gallons we were just like oh my gosh we got 100 (laughs) gallons of sap this is this is this is insane right and then uh and then finally we started having a lot of success so so basically as we're doing some of this you know manual sap collection in our in our woods um we were ramping up our rabbits starting to sell the customers and that sort of thing and um as the success of the rabbits took off you know my my dad was like hmm why not let's go for it and he just had a got an inkling he grabbed uh my mom threw her in the truck and hooked up a trailer and the two of them took off to wisconsin and they bought this huge you know, $15,000 evaporator and a reverse osmosis. And, you know, the, the legitimate, like he bought, I think he came back with like $40,000 worth of equipment and two beat and taps. And, and he came back and we're just like, okay, this is really happening. Uh Right. So we, over the next year or two, we learned uh, all about weather patterns. We learned about all the equipment. We made a ton of mistakes. Um, but now going into our fifth year, um, we are pulling 40,000, 50,000 gallons of sap a year, and we're still small. Um, this year has kind of been a watershed year where we've really started to go from this mid-size, you know, you're not, you know, super large commercial, but you're too big to be a hobbyist, yeah. right? And you're right in that, that middle ground. Yeah, and so this is kind of that year where we've been working with our, you know, Department of Natural Resources, local logging families, um, private landowners, expanding, you know, locations that look viable, connecting with the universities. We work with UW and and OSU on forestry and maple syrup concepts, um, and they, we've we've worked with them because. You know, we started to get a lot of press in, you know, Modern Farmer and, you know, uh, um, NPR came out and, you know, a lot of the local news and, and all these things. So um, UW actually used our one of our articles to submit for a grant to, to prove that the potential for commercial viability of West Coast maple syrup that there's a lot of potential there, and so they got their grant and they've started to put money into studying it. And Oregon State followed suit with the same concept. So it's it's neat to see from one crazy idea that you're told can't be done, um, and doing it anyway to now seeing you know universities raise millions of dollars based on this one crazy idea of going out to see if these trees will
0: you know, That's so with water so out. So how how is what you do different from what they do on the East Coast? And what's the difference in taste? And I'm, I'm assuming this process is completely regenerative, right? Yes,
1: it, 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 absolutely. And so the biggest thing is weather. Okay. And the biggest reason that, that it seemed that it couldn't be done on the West Coast is our weather pattern. So you have this major spike of cold weather on the East Coast, and then you have this major thaw, snow melting, saturating the ground, um, et cetera. And uh, from there, um, uh, you know your season basically begins. Over here, you have to catch all these little micro-freezes and thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw, freeze, thaw. So over here, you'll have... Seven, you know, four to six runs packed over the season where you have to catch each run individually instead of one seasonal run. Um, so that has become something that we've gotten very good at. Um the uh from the regenerative side, the nice thing is is you know, you're not watering this crop, you're not fertilizing this crop, you're not right. Um and so, as we've moved from you know learning that these trees could actually be tapped and produced a very profitable product, we've started to realize, well, this is one of the fastest growing trees, native trees over here. It's maligned by foresters up and down the west coast because there's more on how to poison and kill maple syrup trees than there is on how to grow them. Yet Mm -hmm. the maple tree is one of the largest broadleaf trees out there and creates a rainforest-like canopy and it's native to this Puget Sound region. Um, But the only thing that it's really valued for is firewood or furniture, right? And so there's this misaligned value associated to it because of hundreds of years of forestry practices. But in reality, we can rebuild our rivers and streams and, you know, cool the ground and build wildlife habitat and create this canopy that turns literally into a a, a rainforest like riparian zone with one of the fastest growing Uh, trees native to this area that needs no no water no fertilizer and produces a a crop a harvestable sugar water that at this point is more profitable than probably any crop that can be planted in the ground in this region i mean we're um right now we're getting around 450 dollars average um per gallon for west coast maple syrup the average price per gallon on the east coast is 40 to 60 dollars for the producer us being able to go direct to customer build this story design a product that isn't produced anywhere else Um, we have we have a waiting list of retailers wholesalers restaurants and even buyers that we can't even you know meet the demand of thus the reason that we're really trying to you know, think of these and and, and expand existing tree uh, coverage for for more sugar bushes and, and maple tapping, and then also partnering with landowners to build these profitable forest models um, cool. that are now dealing with you know um, carbon and, and climate issues, and also has a, a product. So these you you go from this. Um, you know, cyclical, clear-cut, replant, 30-year model that is very devastating to that, you know, piece of land that they're doing that to, um, to a, you know, uh, almost generational style forest that the the healthier that forest is, the more profit it's going to produce for the, for the, um, you know, for the harvester while doing nothing but regenerate, you know, being extremely regenerative to the land and ecosystem that it's um, there for, so it's it's just this perfect cyclical um, environment for.
0: Uh, that's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> tell me, tell me about the the nutrient value of the maple syrup. What are the What are the benefits of it? Um, it yeah, like that's it?
1: <laughs> so. I I just. Over the last couple of days, I've been going back with, with one of the professors at OSU because we're very interested in, in a mineral like health water, and it is extremely high in vitamin Bs, more so than East Coast, because uh, West Coast maple syrup, one of the things, we it takes 40 to 50, depending on the sugar content, um, maybe up to 60 gallons of raw sap on the East Coast to make a gallon of maple syrup. Over here, it's double because our sugar content is less. So you have to almost double the amount of cooking, um, which changes a lot of the uh, uh, makeup of the the flavor profile. It also is much higher in uh, minerals uh, on the West Coast. And so you have extremely high levels of potassium, magnesium, vitamin Bs and a, and a host of other nutrients that are um very very high in this uh raw sugar sap so it's it's really neat to see the potentials from you know maple syrup sodas mineral waters making sauces out of it um all these other beers and wines and i mean the list goes on um and it's an extremely natural sugar that is high in real bioavailable, you know, like I said, potassiums, magnesiums, et cetera. So it's, it's exciting to.
0: to And you're the only one doing it on the, on the West coast, right? There's some
1: hobbyists. There's some, yeah, there's some hobbyists and there's a huge, you know, co-op style cohort of individuals that's now starting to rise up out of, you know, this, um, you know, the, the, the university research, our research landowners getting excited, people reading the articles. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of buzz right now and people starting to say, Hey, I want to go commercial next year. Hey, I'm really excited to do this in my backyard. Can you give me some tips? Um, and then, uh, um, a lot of money being, you know, uh, spent at universities researching the topics. And so there's, there's, there's going to be a lot more over the next few years. Um, it won't, it, we're, we're still in this unknown phase, this critical momentum of hobbying is starting to unfold. And then this, um, you know, maturity and saturation of, of people starting to execute commercial sides of it is going to
0: start unfolding over the next couple of years. And that basically, again, creates this kind of like decentralized food chain system, right? Right. So, um,
1: the, the, decentralized food side for me, um, is more about, because this is where I put my, you know, tech IT hat on and I, and I wrap, you know, cause from the, from the very beginning of doing these, I always, you know, I, I used to work at a, at a internet company where, you know, we had to spend time, you know, figuring out how to connect, um you know a warehouse over in you know near us and their extended warehouse in Florida, right? So you're having to contact multiple, you know, internet vendors and say, hey, can I get a hop through San Francisco? Cause I need to connect to Comcast over, you know, and you're making these connections and, and logistical decisions that really put together this this network or almost this supply chain so that they can communicate as the same. And so those types of of things that I did always got me thinking from a you know supply chain you know blockchain um you know just overall ease of use from a tech standpoint and how you can take factory farming throw a grenade in there blow that up and separate those requirements to produce those 10,000 hogs over a much broader area but leverage that technology to introduce local feed systems to feed that distribute, because animal, you know, the the biggest, you know, no pun intended beef with the beef and pork industry is that you have all this pressure in these, you know, uh, uh, areas that are very concentrated. Right. So you get these, you know, stories that you'll see come out in the news where it's like, Oh my gosh, you know, 10,000 pounds of, of, you know, waste manure got leaked into this creek that went into the river that got you know blah 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 so um that doesn't happen when you're spreading out the 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 need for these animals to be raised the hard part is is post-world war ii in this industrialization phase you know you had all of this centralization of production right and that led to oh this is great look at how much Meat, we can get out there at scale in this, and so as that model develops, it always becomes harder and harder because you know you get more and more centralized. You have to, you know, produce profit for stakeholders. You have to, you know, and so corners are cut, yeah. And then, and then you have the the great unraveling of
0: those systems, yeah. right? And it all becomes about profit. It's nothing to do with quality. It's nothing to do with the environment. It's just about numbers, right? Yeah.
1: And and again, you look at the nutrient value. I've actually taken. um uh, you know, livers, heart organs, et cetera, to our, um, you know, labs and taking, uh, uh, I did it with chicken. I did it with, you know, rabbit liver. Cause rabbit liver is supposed to be extremely high in vitamin B's and stuff. And I wanted to take, I took a, uh, uh, you know, standard market, you know, that I could go get ordered some rabbit, took their liver, all that kind of stuff. And I took a, a, variant into the lab and and the the numbers are staggering between the feed systems and when you look at the nutrient values of like say the commodity rabbit liver versus the lab rabbit liver we're raising you know you have huge spikes in vitamin b levels and that and that speaks to you know uh when you're looking at vegetables at the same time you walk into a store and you see a red tomato and you think a red tomato has the same nutrient value as that red tomato they're all the same a red tomato is a red tomato well that's not true because you know for that red tomato to grow um in a, in a commodity you know uh, uh you know large facility the nutrient uptake or, or or the soil that's depleted is very different. So that feed, that meal that it's eating and pulling out of the soil is much different than, than you know, a, a red tomato that's getting the makeup that it's necessary. So yeah. the same happens with these supply chains. And when you look at a big, you know, factory farm, it just, you know, it is different. Sorry, that's another side rant. But Um, Again, going back to uh, logistics and supply chains and decentralization, that whole system of can be spread out amongst um, many farmers because there's for the most off the shelf technologies these days that allow the logistical coordination for those systems to enter the food chain at a high level. So now, you know, whether it be ordering a a whole chicken from an app on your your phone, that system itself could say, oh, well, you're in Pennsylvania. Well, this order is going to come from local food systems in Pennsylvania rather than hit a FedEx airplane and be overnighted across the country because you want to order from, you know, you know, a a pasture-raised farmer in California. We're not there yet because nobody's really building it, yet they are building it. The scary thing is is that if the farmers that are actually doing that and thinking that way don't build it fairly quickly, the large corporations are building the same supply logistics to continue, um, you know, the ease of use to you so that it's going to be much harder down the road for those localized food chains to play the same role that they have right now at this moment in time if the
0: momentum gets built
1: for this to happen. Right? And it's, it's
0: it's so much so. to do with awareness. I remember speaking to Lana about it and she's saying like a lot of people do not realize that like organic produce in Trader Joe's or organic produce in Whole Foods is being shipped in from China. Right. And people just don't no yeah. that's so just a different content. label it's
1: just a different label a different The label, co- yeah. that costco roast is the same roast that you picked up at trader joe's but you think that there's a little bit of a value difference there's not right, right. The, the number one way you can see this and you can go back look at history is go back and look at the statistical recalls of beef and when they recall a beef from a certain producer because of e coli or something they list Trader Joe's, Fred Meyer, Costco. They're all, they it all under the same place. Same
0: yeah.
1: freaking place.
0: So, are you a believer that if, if we can make these changes that w- that we're talking about in, in terms of decentralization, then we can kind of like I don't know whether to save the planet is a is a too too bold a term, but we can certainly help things to a, a much greater degree than the call for we need to stop eating like meat altogether. We need to stop eating. Everything needs to go Uh, vegan, vegetarian. We just need to stop eating meat, and everything will be solved. Like from my take, if we can decentralize farming, if we can focus on the kind of product that you're producing, um, then we can do a lot to reverse the damage that's been done. Um, You know, and we've talked about this in the podcast before. You know, there's only 60 years of of topsoil left, or whatever the number is around that around that mark. If we don't make significant changes in this area, like we're all doomed nutritionally. Right,
1: I, I would 100% agree with that for sure. We're already in in standard commercial markets, doomed nutritionally as we right. speak. But, um, uh, yeah, it's it's one of the things that I I'll say. I won't go too far into this because it's a, it can be a large rabbit hole. Is You know, when when we talk about climate, when we talk about, you know, the the issues with factory farming, um, there's, there's, you have to unravel that and pull back those onion peels because even in that conversation, even in the mainstream conversation of those topics, always ask yourself who politically benefits from controlling these narratives, right? And so you always have to keep that in mind because if you don't understand those conversations, you'll never understand how to truly make a difference. And at the end of the day, one of the things that I learned early working in tech is, you know, leave when you have to work with pre Madonna developers all day long and you have to uh, try to figure out how to get this team to coordinate and work with that team I spent a lot of time doing that and if you don't leave your ego at the door nothing gets done right. and you know if we don't leave this left right paradigm of political banter and figure these solutions out there's only benefit for political gain on one side or the other while nothing gets done hmm so getting rid of that conversation you now are allowed to say okay let's look at what the issues really are okay climate well let's plant some dang trees that actually make a difference that actually are profitable and actually don't need to be cut down so they're a huge carbon sink wildlife reserve preserve and all of the other factors well what are we going to do about our food supply chains Well let's take models that we've developed and allow all of these farmers to utilize the research the application the understanding the 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 way of regenerative farming that allows high dense nutrient rich food to be because right now high dense nutrient rich food is extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive because I know because I sell it and I don't know if I could afford my own food, if I had to buy it at retail prices. And that's not to say that I do it that way because it's just that it's not done at this level often. So my goal to keep doing has to be at a level that's higher than what i could do down here in a lot of ways right um and so for me to to, but if we if we co-opt that kind of mentality and more people start producing it more people start raising high dense nutrient food in a way that becomes more ready readily available you start to to balance that equilibrium of of cost and things like that um you know, supply chains start to develop in a way that that get more robust, and so prices can come down. Yeah,
0: um, but well, and also, and right. also, just getting support from from the government, or you know, the, the government has been supporting factory farming and seed, and you know, subsidizing grain uh, right. for so long. Um, yeah. if they yeah. just put the same kind of like financial and media support behind the things that you're doing and farmers right. that. Doing the things that you're doing, and right. it would go a, a long way to, you know, raise awareness and lower costs.
1: Right. Um, I I agree. Um, yeah. And, I don't and think they're uh, going to do because, it. But I'm just saying. They did. <laughs> well, there's some interesting things uh, that are that are happening right now. Um, you know, but you but you're right. When when the government will pay a farmer to destroy ten thousand acres of corn. Um, you know, for various reasons to, 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 you know, deal with market fluctuations and things like that. It's just, it's not a sustainable system. Right. Right. Especially when the ultimate goal is to make sure people have access to high dense nutrient rich food period. Right. So um, but you're right there. And, and, and I would also anybody who's doing any sort of farming um, and wants to expand, there's actually some some pretty decent programs that are out there for USDA grants, for local grants, for meat producers and things like that. Um, you just have to be scared or sorry, you just have to not be scared to approach the um, grant application process right. um, with, you know fear because it's overwhelming. Um, it is a bit, but it's actually, if you take it step by step, like we just, you know, uh, we're a WSDA processor. So on our facility, on our farm right now, we have license processing, we have, you know, our, our packing and distribution area, we have, you know, our feed mill, we have, you know, all of our, you know, animal production and 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 stuff that that takes place. But this summer, I actually applied for the big meat you know, uh, uh, processors grant that was out there, um, USDA grant, not expecting to get it. I, I'd never done this before. I just went to, uh, you know, Upwork, which is, you know, I think used to be Elance when I used to use it back in the day and hire and, and found, you know, a, a somebody that I thought uh, would work well, that I would work with well, that, you know, could help me walk me through that grant writing process. and not expecting to get it. I did. I ended up getting a quarter million dollar grant to expand my current WSDA processor to, uh, larger, you know, animals, which is great because we have our own beef. We have our own, uh, bison. Um, and we have a lot of other beef farmers in our Valley that could benefit from, you know, having that, uh, you know, slaughter
0: capability as well. So yeah, it's out there. Yeah, I mean it it takes it takes bravery, like you're saying, and it takes pioneers like you to really, you know, make the difference and make the change. So you know, thank God for people like you. Um do you wanna talk a little bit about um about you know what part your faith plays in this, then yeah.
1: Um I mean I'm I am a believer in Christ is the one true God. I don't know if- a lot of people talk about that these days, but, um, yeah, it's, it's my faith is something that I think has created a foundation. Well, I I'll I'll say this number one, my faith is something that's given me the confidence to do the things that I do. Right. When, uh, when you put, there's so many things that we can put our faith in. Right. Um, and, uh, the a hard part is, I think, identity. When we put our identity in things other than Christ, we tend to have a very worldly viewpoint on um, uh, things. So that, I think, has been a big foundation for, number one why I want to raise animals the way that I do, why I want to learn the things that I want to do, why I want to, uh, um, you know, make changes the way that I want to do. And it's not a, you know, uh, we were called to be stewards of the planet, not to worship the planet. There's a vast difference between the two. Being a steward means you're going to do everything in your power to take care and love something worshiping something means that it's going to become an idol to you and it's something that you're going to um you know that's going to become basically part of your identity i think a lot of that too has played a big role in you know a lot of these you know mother earth sustainability movements as well um which is is not the ideology that i adhere to in any way shape or form but A lot of the, you know, when you're a steward of something, there's a huge crossover in terms of somebody that idolizes something, right? In that gray area where it's like, yeah, we all want to see, you know, uh, the planet do better. We all want to see, you know, uh, each other do better. We all want to see, you know, the streams and ecological systems run better and all of these things. But again, um, I, I think so much of this goes back to that, you know, again, um, you know, who benefits politically and, and so, so much stuff gets corrupted, sure. um, that, uh, I think, again, going back to the the faith question, it, it, it has really given me the foundation to um, love others as I would myself. And so that reflection there, I think is an outpouring of everything that I focus on. Right. And why in a lot of ways I'm successful with the things that I do because I do approach it from that perspective that this isn't just about me. Right. Um, and so, yeah. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah well it sounds like it's giving it's giving sense. Sense. it's just giving you direction it's giving you courage <laughs> right. it's giving you all these things it's fantastic right. Devin, how do people how do people learn from you how do people buy projects from you and what's the best way to reach out to you
1: i think right now there, there's there's two we have a lot of websites going up right now um but the two foundational websites i think that have kind of been the core of what we do is um, valleyrabbits.com and neilsbigleaf.com for the maple syrup. Um, And all our contact info is on both of those. A lot of product info is on there. Most of the, I will say, so rabbit has been kind of our biggest commercial livestock product. Our beef, our eggs, our chicken, all of those were more local through our food drop um scenario we're we're sort of reducing that a little bit and and focusing on you know the the maple syrup and the forestry side of things um but uh those have have uh, been um so I don't know where I was going with that, but those those aren't are, aren't as much the focus as those four, yeah. you know rabbits and, and maple syrup. So
0: how how long is the wait for maple syrup, and how long before I can put it on my pancakes?
1: Uh, you actually can order right now. We do have uh, some left. I, I've been holding off. So funny, you know, I've set every season, and I haven't done it. I did it at the beginning of this season with a little bit of left with a little bit of stock we had left over, but I'll send out an email. And the first time I did it, I was blown away because I didn't believe it was really happening. We produced a couple hundred gallons. Um, I put all the inventory on the website. I sent out an email because I mean, the the nice thing is, is it's unique enough that we've built a very large email list um, because of its uniqueness and exposure that we've gotten through, through the media And uh, I did an email blast and the entire inventory was sold out in about an hour and a half. We're talking like 1,200 orders or something. And so my mom spent like eight hours a day for almost two weeks (laughs) packing orders. And she said, don't ever do that to me again. (laughs) So, So it it's there's still inventory available but I'll probably do a a, an email blast here soon and and uh, um so
0: yeah I'll watch out for it yeah yeah (laughs) um Devin I I love talking to people like you because you know it's easy to get uh negative about things and down on things and everybody's everybody's shouting everybody and everyone's you know upset about everything but you know I talk to people like you and it it gives me hope it's it's encouraging to see people like taking risks and being pioneers and really doing things to make a change rather than shouting at other people to change. <laughs> so the right. fact that you're doing it practically, uh, you're doing what your love and you're making them all the all a better place is refreshing and inspiring. So thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to try some of this maple syrup. <laughs> awesome. I look forward to sending it to you.
1: Thanks for your time. Appreciate Perfect. it. Have a wonderful day.
0: I'll talk to you soon, my man. Take care. All right. Take care.